Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Joe Lowry, who's a young emerging talent co-hosting the MLS Assist podcast, among several other things. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Matteo Benetti, Emilia Lopez, and Adam Bells, along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Joe Lowry on soon here, but let's start with some talk about the soccer world with my friend Chris Whittingham of the Chelsea Miked Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Drowning in soccer, but other than that, doing great. <laughs> Drowning in soccer and NFL. I know you do stuff yes. with the Dolphins. Uh, <laughs> we're recording this on a Sunday, so lots going on around the world in the soccer space. But let's start with Yanks Abroad, uh, mm. because it was kind of a weird weekend for Yanks Abroad, uh, men's and women's. Uh, on the men's side, we did see Weston McKinney get back into the starting lineup for Juventus. He very unselfishly assisted Alvaro Morata on Juve's first goal to get today. Um, Juve ends up being Spezia 4-1, uh, two goals by Cristiano Ronaldo, who came on in this game in his COVID return. In other Yanks abroad news, Josh Sargent scored his first Bundesliga goal of the season in a 1-1 tie between his Werder Bremen and Eintracht Frankfurt. But in the bigger picture, Christian Pulisic was injured uh, in the warm-up for Chelsea, ended up not playing in that game. He was going to start. Tyler Adams was not in the 18 for Leipzig. Uh, Gio Reyna and Serginio Dest did not start for their teams. They end up coming off the bench. And we can kind of pick and choose here what we want to focus on, but I'm also starting to wonder a little bit if we might have some injury concerns with some of these guys for the upcoming U.S. men's national team camp. And I think with Christian Pulisic is is the biggest frustration right now because he just can't seem to go any period of time without getting injured. And that's a really big concern, both for the U.S. men's national team and for Chelsea, who I think need him a great deal. He is a key part of their attack. And while I think Hakim Ziyech has done a really good job uh, since he's come into the team, they need Christian Pulisic fit. And I actually think maybe towards the beginning of Frank Lampard's tenure, they were aggressive about trying to bring him back into the lineup fairly quickly. But I think this go-around, they actually might have frustrated Christian a little bit with how long they took him. They It seemed like he was going to play the game before the international break then he didn't took the entire international break to get fit has only played a couple of games here and then you get injured in the warm-up news now we'll see when Frank Lampard gives a press conference about you know what the nature of the injury is and how long he'll be out but there is a growing concern that this player can't stay fit and there was always times at Dortmund where it was an injury here, an injury there. At Chelsea, we've seen some longer recovery times. What is it about him in particular that forces him to miss games? Now, I'm not injury-prone guy. Like, I don't think that there are people who are more likely to get injured repeatedly than others. But at the same time, you just are concerned. I think Adams is actually in the same ballpark. If not for Christian, I think we talk a lot about how often Tyler Adams has been injured with Rebel Leipzig. So uh, I think there are uh, concerns all around there just in terms of this unicorn of 
all of the young, good U.S. men's national team players fit and in the same squad at the same time. We've been waiting for it, and I think we're going to have to wait a little while longer here for, with this November camp. You know, and there were certain players like this, well, just over time. I mean, Gio Reyna's dad, Claudio, had some similarities with this in his career where he would pick up injuries on a fairly regular basis in between being very, very good on the field. I think Aryan Robin's career ended up being defined not just by being a tremendous winger, but also by regular injuries his entire career. And I'm not a doctor, I'm not an expert, but uh, this is one area where I do agree with the old Alexi Lalas uh, canard of uh, it's a skill to stay fit um, and, and be able to be on the field. So you really do hope for the sake of Chelsea and the U.S. men's national team that Christian Pulisic can find a way to stay fit and on the field because he's he makes an impact when he's healthy. He just needs to be healthy. We saw Weston McKinney come back uh, from his own COVID situation and be in the starting lineup. He'd come off the bench before this. How do you feel about how he's, when he's been on the field with Juventus, is he is he fitting in? Well, I, I like the fact that he's involved in goals. That's really not been his game throughout most of his career at Schalke. And I think the fact that he's been, he was obviously involved in this goal in this game against Spezia and it seems as though when he's involved in the team, they are playing better than when he's not involved in the team. Whether or not that's happenstance or not, whether it's a product of his performance or not, it's a good thing towards him playing more, which ultimately is the goal. You fear Weston McKinney going to a club like Juventus not being able to find minutes, especially in a position like central midfield, where they are so crowded, right? They've got so many players they brought in on free transfers. They're trying to offload some of them, but you bring in a player like McKinney, and it seems as though... And I forget where I heard this, where he was talking about how he has a much smaller role. It was, it was Mateo on, on, on Football with Grant Wall when, uh, when he was on early, when Mateo mentioned that he's got a smaller role and is asked to do less and, and can be more specific about what he does in that central midfield, and that has allowed him to focus his game on particular areas. And hopefully, Andrea Pirlo is identifying those as cogs towards the success of Juventus, because given their up-and-down results, if he's part of decide when they're playing well, I imagine Andrea Pirlo will want to feature him more, and that can only be a good thing for him, for the U.S. men's national team, and for Juventus. As for Gio Reyna and Serginho Dest, my hope is that they did not start this weekend because they will start for Champions League midweek. Uh, we'll have to wait and see if that happens because both have been chosen as starters for big games, including Gio Reyna for Champions League, so uh, they don't seem to have any sort of injury issues like the other guys, but You'd like to see, I, I would say overall right now, I have a feeling uh, I'm a little disappointed lately that the these top five Americans in Europe on Champions League teams don't seem to be getting as many starts as I thought they would. And I'm wondering if I'm being, if, if my expectations are too high. I think they are a little bit too high just because, I mean, with Barcelona, you have Jordi Alba, who's been their left back for a while, and Sergio Roberto, a player who's played that position a quite, a quite a bit while also at times playing in central midfield. So I think those are probably the first team players there. And also, teams are going to rotate. And I actually think, you know, I, I saw this stat that between DFB Cup and Bundesliga, Gio Reyna had played more minutes than any other attacker besides Erling Haaland in that run of games. And so they're going to have to bring players through. They're in squads that have enormous depth and quality. And so 
there are going to be times where unless they're scoring and assisting in every game, they're going to be rotated. I think the Dest thing, it was always, he's a depth signing that will eventually grow into maybe being the Barca right back. Um, but the fact that he got that Champions League start, the fact that he got the start in the Clasico, for me, is a sign that he is on his way. I don't think it's going to be every single game, but he's in a good spot. And I think Reyna, we know that Lucien Favre now trust Gio Reyna and at times I mean, we saw in their Champions League match against Lazio when he didn't start brought him out at halftime and then went and changed the game so I think Dortmund are better when Reyna is involved and I think that will probably mean that he will start a majority of their games. In other Yanks Abroad news, on the women's side, Sam Ewis and Rose Lavelle won the English Women's FA Cup with Man City on Sunday. 3-1 winners in extra time against Everton in a game that was a lot closer than the final score indicated. Sam Ewis with her fourth goal for Man City. Uh, she had the opener, kind of an unmarked header on a corner kick. And at this point, I've seen this Man City women's team play several times. And I think Sam Ewis has really fit in well and been a huge addition to that team. Overall, I've been a little disappointed, actually, even though they just won a trophy here with what I've seen from Man City, I guess mainly in the league. I thought they would be better given the personnel that they have. And I'm a little disappointed so far in how Rose Lavelle is being used because they have her playing as kind of a number nine sometimes, sometimes out wide. And I I feel like those aren't Rose Lavelle's best positions to be in. And, and they're off the pace a little bit in the league, but they did win a trophy here today, so I'm not going to totally bag on them. I just think it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Agreed, and I, I think the transition from America, you know, the American women players into England has been a bit up and down on, on the whole. So I think it just goes to show that it is an entirely different setup than playing with the in, in, in NWSL, and the, the coaching is different, the style is different, and ultimately, American players have to find their roles and their fits. And... I think as it relates to Man City, I think they're very obviously the third best women's side in England behind Chelsea and Arsenal. I think they're, you know, head and shoulders above Man City. They've got a ton of growing to do. And it is a bit surprising, as you mentioned with the Lavelle thing, that she doesn't kind of have a control of a position. Because I think you could have made the argument after the World Cup in 2019, she's the best player in the world, right? And and plays out of that number 10 position, that creative position. You want to see her there. Unfortunately, I, I do kind of wonder if fitness plays a role in this. Because if you're going to be playing in that center midfield, you're going to have to do a lot of running and, and be a part of the defending as well. And Rose Lavelle, we talked earlier about American men players struggling to stay fit. Rose Lavelle has definitely struggled to stay fit uh, during her time, uh, both in you know with Washington Spirit and in England with Manchester City. So I think it is it is a mixed bag, and I actually think it's a good thing, right? Because it's an entirely different environment. It should be a little bit hard. It shouldn't just be the U.S. players showing up and dominating as cool as that would be. Yeah, we'll see how Roosevelt continues to do over there because she's still got time, obviously. And I, I feel like you know she came off in the 70th minute of this final. So I think fitness is a bit of a concern still, and we'll see if she can find a way to to be even more influential because she hasn't been as influential yet as I thought she might have been. Uh, let's keep it in Manchester uh, and move it to the men's side. Manchester United nil, Arsenal won. I think it's the first Arsenal win at Old Trafford in 14 years, at least in the league. And kind of a weird game. Uh, United now in 15th place in the league, despite just killing teams in Champions League. They won 5-0 against Leipzig midweek after they'd won at PSG in the opener for Champions League, but they're struggling mightily in the Premier League. And, you know, this game was was odd because I don't think either team 
was that great. And it just happened that Paul Pogba had a dumb penalty in the box and you know ends up getting converted and, and Arsenal get gets what in the end is a very big win. It was interesting to see Arteta kind of like do a fist pump like right in the face of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer after this, right before he shook his hand. Trouble at Man United, maybe, in the league. Well, trouble at both clubs for me, just because I think these are a pair of young managers that are struggling to figure out how to get their teams to attack well every single game. I actually think, even though Arsenal have become a lot more defensively solid and pull off the results against Liverpool and winning the FA Cup, that from an attacking point of view... Uh, you'd think a Pep Guardiola disciple would have more than what Miguel Arteta has brought to Arsenal, in my opinion. And so uh, with Manchester United, I think their recent results make a great deal of sense, given what we've seen in the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer era. Set up really well against big teams, oddly enough. Like, Ole seems to get the big occasion spot on. But when Arsenal comes, you know, comes to Old Trafford to set up to try and frustrate him and not necessarily try and attack him, Chelsea did the same thing. Doesn't seem like Manchester United have much of anything, right? And I think it's born out of Ole doesn't seem to have patterns and replicable ways of getting his attackers in good spots. And I don't think this is a personnel thing. I don't think if you put Jadon Sancho in this team, all of a sudden they'd have that ability to get their attackers into good spots. Yes, you have a better player on that right wing, but you still don't have that chance creation mechanism to where you know that if an attacker makes a certain run, that you'll slide him in, he'll be in and have a good chance to score. It just doesn't seem like Manchester United have that on a replicable basis. When they play Leipzig, they can hit him on the counter and all of a sudden Marcus Rashford is running at your defense. Terrifying. But if you're if you can set up a team to stop that from happening, which seems to be pretty easy, then you can frustrate Manchester United and they don't have that way to score easy goals. I do wonder, is the success that Man United is having in Champions League almost something that could help Ole keep his job when otherwise he might not be able to? Well, he kept his job initially on the basis of winning in the Champions League. Right? I mean, obviously they won, you know, six games in a row in the league, but he really secured his job with Manchester United by beating PSG, coming back from 2-0 down, 2-0 down on away goals as well uh, to win a 3-2 in the Champions League against Paris Saint-Germain. So I think that's kind of how he's made his bones as Manchester United manager is that success in Europe. But I don't I don't think he can keep his job if they're 15th in the league. As wide open as it is, as good of a position as they could be in, and to me, I mentioned personnel, I think their personnel's good enough. Mason Greenwood's really talented. Marcus Rashford's hat-trick in midweek was insane. Martial and Bruno Fernandes and Pogba and Van de Beek and all these players that I think are good. And yeah, maybe they don't have enough in defense, but it's not, it's not not enough in defense to be 15th in the Premier League. So I think... A, a better manager, I think a Maurizio Pochettino would have them in the top four, no problem. And I think the sooner they make that decision and realize that Ole is not going to get them there, the quicker they can head towards being a club that, hell, could even compete for the league this year. We've seen Chelsea, with a brief turnaround, look like they can compete for the league this year just because of a couple of good results and Edward Mendy all of a sudden has them keeping clean sheets. I don't think it's going to take that much. And so I think the sooner that United can realize that, the sooner they can compete at the top of the league. I guess one last question I'd have about Man United is it's sort of frustrating to watch them and see Van de Beek and Cavani not getting much time on the field, it seems like. Now, maybe with Cavani, there may be some fitness issues because he really hasn't been back for that long and didn't have a preseason. But it seems like those are two guys who should be on the field more. 
Totally agree. I, I, definitely as it relates Van de Beek. I mean, although there was always that conversation about balance, right? Like, how could you play a central midfield three of Van de Beek, Pogba, and Bruno Fernandes, or is that way too attacking? Like, would you be hopelessly exposed if you did that? I'd like to see it. Uh, just because, you know, pl- play, you know, Van de Beek and, and Pogba next to each other, and let's see how it goes, just because it couldn't be worse than 15th in the Premier League. Um, and then as it relates to Cavani, I mean, I get it to, to some extent, right? You've brought in a player who's in his early to mid-30s, and you've got a teenager in Greenwood who you want to see what he can do playing out of that center forward role. You've got Martial and Rashford and, and these guys that I think you probably want to see more of, but still, I mean, Cavani can offer you so much that you want to see what he can do because he, I think he came on in his first game as a sub and looked really sharp against Chelsea. Like he, he really, you know, was like, all right, like you can see why this guy's just been a class center forward everywhere. He's just a class player. And so you, you do want given the current situation, why not get him more chances to, to be in that starting lineup and see if maybe he can change the dynamic of this team. They're also paying Cavani crazy money salary yeah. wise in part because he was a free transfer. So I'd like to see him out there a little bit more, but we'll see. Um, I want to move over to MLS. We're actually recording this on Sunday before the lion's share of MLS games on Sunday night. But I want to have a, a discussion about MLS coaches because we saw Guillermo Barrascolotto be fired this week, finally, from the LA Galaxy after just a, a miserable season out there with a team that has a lot of ambition, spends a lot of money. GBS had had success with Boca Juniors before he came to MLS. We're seeing a coach like Matias Almeida, who has struggled with San Jose, even though he had success with Chivas and River Plate and other bigger teams over the years. Now we're even seeing Velko Panovic atop the English championship of all places by four points right now with Reading, first season with the team, after he had been pretty terrible with the Chicago Fire over three seasons. I look at the current top seven teams in the standings in MLS, and they either all have American coaches or they have coaches like Oscar Pereja and Giovanni Savarese who have been working in the U.S. and in MLS for for quite a while now. And I'm wondering, we always used to sort of say that MLS was this bizarro league for foreign coaches where it was just a completely different world. And... In recent years, the conventional wisdom has been that that's changed, that we've seen people like Patrick Vieira come in and have success, and we've seen a lot more foreign coaches come in, variety of tactical approaches. But is MLS still a bizarro league for foreign coaches based on what we're seeing? I think it is. I, I really do. I, I think like it is so particular with the salary cap rules. And I think if you're a coach like Guillermo Barroscoloto, who comes from Boca Juniors, where you can say, all right, I don't have enough on the bench. I don't have enough in this area. Let's go sign a player. And here, it's so hard to just up and sign a player, right? You've got to fit him under the cap and there's allocation money rules and there's you know allocation lists and all this stuff right? That gets in the way of just get me the player that I want in order to fix it. And I also think as well, you have to maximize young American players or players in the quote American soccer system. And I do think you have to get it a little bit. You have to get where these players have come from in order to best maximize them. And so I do think that it is particular and it really does require, as you mentioned, someone like Oscar Parejo came in and kind of understood it. I think, for example, a coach like Ronnie Dylo took over New York City FC has taken a long time. And you and you heard him in the press publicly saying, 
I need to put them back in the position where they were succeeding before. And remember, when Dome Tehran took over from Patrick Vieira, it took him a second to figure out how to put his guys in the best position to succeed within this league. And I kind of wonder if he gave up on the whole thing because it's like, my God, this is... No, he did. This is, this is insane. Like, what am I doing? Uh, so uh, to me, it always comes down to the rules are too arcane, right? Like, they're too difficult to get your head wrapped around quickly, right? I do think, like... If a coach sticks around three, four, five years and wants to sweat it out and see what it's like, you know, over the long term, they can eventually succeed. But in the near term, it's hard to parachute into MLS. And we found it difficult for some, not all, but some executives to just parachute in and figure out how this league works. I still think it's really convoluted. I do too. And I, I kind of laugh now when I think about Dome Turan because this happened when I interviewed him. And based on other media people I know, it would happen every interview he would ever do is after the on-the-record part of the interview was done, he would then rail off the record afterward about MLS being this ridiculous league <laughs> <laughs> and, and all the different handcuffs that they put on you. And so it wasn't really a surprise when he chose to leave NYCFC at the end of last season. He's obviously now with Flamengo. And, and Toronto loved living in New York City. And clearly loved to talk soccer. I really enjoyed my conversations with him, but he just did not mix with MLS. And I guess I'm a little bummed out about that because I want to see MLS have the best coaches possible and would prefer for it not to get a reputation in coaching circles around the world as this freakish league that isn't really like the results don't really reflect the talent of coaches. And, th- and that is the concern, right? And I, th- the reason why I, I kind of, you know, was really alarmed by this is Velko Panovic at Reading, right? Because it's not like, <laughs> I mean, Velko Panovic couldn't get anywhere near success in the league. They couldn't stop conceding goals in Chicago. And then Reading, I, in their first, I haven't checked the table <laughs> since, but in their first six or seven games, they gave up one goal. And so I'm just like, well, he might be a really good coach. Maybe, you know, coach, I think the Serbian youth national team to a good place in the World Cup. And... You know, like there are two non MLS examples compared with the MLS example, and they don't mix. And I just wonder if it's the particular nature of the league, and and you're only gonna, you know, draw international. Like, what if Chicharito not succeeding is a result of MLS being particular? What if you know Gonzalo Higuain has only got one goal so far? You know, but you know before the start of the night is because MLS is particular. Like, if the league is so strange that otherwise good people aren't <laughs> succeeding, then maybe. The league needs to examine itself and go, well, how can we make this better and more welcoming? Because ultimately, that's how, or, or, do you just embrace the very uniquely American aspects of it and say, this is us, take it or leave it. Yeah. I, one other piece of news on Sunday, Juan Carlos Osorio is out as the coach of Nacional and in Colombia. Kind of makes you wonder if maybe LA Galaxy might be a, a potential destination there just because I spent a lot of time covering, uh, Osorio and Chicharito when they were together with the Mexican national team. I know how much Chicharito loves Juan Carlos Osorio. Obviously, Osorio has a long history in MLS as well. I remember covering him when the Metro Stars, or were they the Red Bulls? I guess they were the Red Bulls at that point. Uh, he took to the 2008 uh, MLS Cup final with uh, a pretty good team, actually. But that would be an interesting one to see him back in the league. I've always liked Osorio more than, than some people have, especially Mexican national team fans, I guess. And I kind of wonder as well if maybe he's just a good national team coach. I love the way that his Mexico side played. And I know fans were always kind of annoyed with how much he tinkered. But 
it makes sense for a national team coach to tinker. And basically it's like, all right, we've tried everything and now we're going to go into this tournament and try and win it. And I think he's someone who can do that. He also did that in with MLS regular seasons as well. It's like, well, I'm going to make the playoffs, so let's try a bunch of different stuff and see what works. But yeah, I, I think he'd be an interesting fit. And also, Dennis DeClosa being in charge in, in LA has that connection with the with the Mexican Federation. So uh, that, I, I hadn't thought of that. It actually makes a great deal of sense to me. That said, I tweeted this the other day. From a storyline perspective, Jurgen Klinsmann as <laughs> LA Galaxy coach, Jill Ellis as DC United coach. Let's do it. I, I, listen, I, I love a narrative as much as anyone. That would make DC United and LA Galaxy tremendous watches next season. So I'm I'm here for it. All right. Thanks so much for joining me, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Joe Lowry. Our guest now is someone who's doing some cool work on a number of fronts. Joe Lowry is the Phoenix-based co-host of the MLS Assist podcast on tactics in MLS with Jordan Angeli, who's been on the show before with us. He's also the founder of 361 Soccer, which does video storytelling around the American game, and he writes a newsletter called Benched. Lately, he has also been doing some podcast episodes of Soccer 101 with our partner, The Total Soccer Show. You can find him on Twitter at Joe in Cleats. Joe, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely, Grant. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to do this. Been listening to your show uh, and all the different things you're doing uh, lately. Congratulations on that. Um, I, I think I want to start, the thing that most people have gotten to know you on is your MLS Assist podcast, where you and Jordan Angeli's show great enthusiasm breaking down what MLS teams are doing on the field. You've been doing this all season in this crazy year, and it's pretty unique among podcasts out there. How did you get started with it? Yeah, so it started out of an idea that I'd had, and a question more so that I'd had about whether or not you could have detailed tactical discussions in an audio medium, right? It's it's a weird, it's a weird thing. And I'll be the first to admit that. And when I was first running up that idea, running that idea up the flagpole with a few different people, I got feedback that was like, don't do this. Why would you choose to do this? Why would you take tactics, which is an inherently visual thing, and turn it into something that people cannot see? And so it's it's strange, but I kept at it. And maybe this is my personality a little bit. I can be stubborn, especially when I have an idea that I like, but I kept at it. And, and I was encouraged by listening to the Total Soccer Show, who are, who are and, and were so good at going through digging into tactics, analyzing the game, describing what's happening in a way that you can almost picture it in your head. And so I had the idea, I think I tweeted something about it just to get the general perception and to get feedback from Twitter. And and Taylor, I think it was, reached out to me though. He's told me that Daryl also saw the tweet at the time and they they reached out to me and were like, hey, do you want to actually move forward with this? Can we talk about this? And that sort of was the starting point, was that tweet, those conversations with the TSS guys and now it's an actual show. It's cool. I mean, you guys are, are regular. You clearly watch a ton of MLS games and you have to because you can't fake it uh, if you're going to talk tactics. Yeah. Um, how did you get connected with, with Jordan Angeli on it and, and then get to the point where you're like, we're going to do this on a regular basis? I had a couple of conversations with Bobby Warshaw and Matt Doyle. Bobby is no longer writing for MLSsoccer.com, but Matt is still over there writing for them. I needed a co-host and I knew that you can't, you can't really do something like that. Just one person. Everybody's going to hate hearing your voice after a while as you go through and analyze the ins and outs of the game week after week. And so I knew I needed someone. 
And I texted Bobby, I called Bobby and, and same with, with Doyle. And Bobby connected me with a few different people and and I ended up reaching out to Jordan because I listened to stuff that she'd done and I thought she did an incredible job breaking down games. Her perspective as a former player was helpful. That wasn't ultimately though, I think what really drew me to her work. It was how she distills information down into a way that is is logical and is clear and is understandable. And so I ended up calling Jordan. We had a few different conversations as I sort of paced around the room, just talking with her and trying to have her and I get on the same page because it was an idea that I'd had that I knew had some real challenges associated with it. But after a few phone conversations, she was waiting to see what was happening with her career moving forward, looking for a broadcast gig. Obviously, now she's with the Columbus crew doing a great job this season in a really bizarre, insane MLS season. But she's been great. And so we, we decided that we wanted to make a go of it. We wanted to connect with each other and do the show. And so that's how I got to her was through Bobby. What have you learned about in a non-visual platform works? Yeah, uh, it's, it's tricky sometimes to distill that information into a way that is able to be understood by a listening audience. I think I've realized that in order to make tactics clear to to listeners, not to viewers, because that's a lot easier. I think I think that's something that a lot of people can do. But for for listeners, you need to be descriptive with how you're doing things. Or maybe that's just how my mind works. But with an audio medium, yes, there's all of the logistical parts that go into it. But for tactics specifically, I think you need to lay the groundwork of what scene you're trying to describe using words, laying out the general shapes of the teams, laying out where players are on the field, or at least the important players in the play. But also at the same time, you can't have too much information that you're trying to give people. So you're always straddling that line between painting enough of the picture, but not painting too many of the details in the picture that it gets distracting. And I, I'd be absolutely lying to you, Grant, if I'd said I'd figured it out right now. But I think over this, this season, I've gotten a little bit better and learned a little bit more about how to communicate tactical things over audio. It's interesting because, you know, I will say like what you're doing works. I mean, I, I've, I've listened to your episodes. Uh, there does seem to be a bit more tactical variation in MLS these days and a bit more foreign influence that's come into the league uh, as we've gotten more teams and as more time has passed in the history of MLS. Because I can remember it wasn't that long ago that it was basically all American coaches doing four four two. That is not the case now. Um, what is what, what is most interesting to you about tactics and MLS these days and the variety that we're now seeing? I love that you pinpointed that word variety because we're seeing exactly that. We're seeing Oscar Pereja come into Orlando, come back to Major League Soccer from Liga Mekis and change this Orlando City team completely. Now they'll play with the ball. They'll play in a 4-2-3-1, move the ball from side to side, look for Nani to get isolated on that left side, try to create space for Dale DK up top. I mean, they're doing fun things on the soccer field. Then you look at the union. I know you've had Jim Curtin on the show relatively recently. You look at what they're doing in that 4-4-2 diamond, which is so much fun to watch. We don't see another team in Major League Soccer playing the diamond. The union don't do it every game, but they do it almost every game. And it's unique. It's something different. Then you look at LAFC. Not their best season this year by a long shot. But Bob Bradley playing in that 4-3-3 with fluid rotations. Latif Blessing. just I love Latif Blessing. He'll play in so many different spots just in the course of one game, but also one game he'll be at right back. Then he'll be in midfield. Then he'll be on the wing. I mean, he'll do so many different things. And so that's just three examples of what we're seeing tactically in Major League Soccer. Two of those coaches were American. One isn't. But the list goes on and on. We're seeing different styles of play. Some teams are executing their styles of play very well. 
Others, not so well. Others don't even have a clear style of play. But the fact that we're seeing different things from different teams in different seasons is encouraging and gives me a lot of joy as someone who loves to dig my teeth and sink my teeth into tactics. It's interesting to me as well because it seems like we're just starting to see this on U.S. television with people like Roberto Martinez breaking down tactics in TV studio shows. That's a fairly new thing. There's actually been very few former coaches that we've seen on American soccer television broadcast over the years. Usually it's just been former players and they've sort of been hesitant to to get into tactics on television broadcast. And I think that's due to producer choices over the years. Do you think we're starting just now to enter a phase where this side of the game is getting the attention it deserves here? Absolutely. The the landscape of tactics and of the amount of information available for people who are interested is is getting bigger and bigger. There's more and more info available. I mean, you can go on Twitter and look at so many different people who are doing it very well and who are communicating tactical information to the general public. Then even you look towards the TV side of things, that Roberto Martinez example is perfect. We're seeing people now in studio breaking things down, and that just hasn't happened before. I mean, I think a lot of that is is related to the American soccer public's tactical knowledge or, or what it was maybe a few years ago, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. You think about a, a guy like Bruce Arena. I can't picture him getting into a TV studio and breaking down tactics, right? That's, that's not going to happen. You're not going to see so many of these larger figures in American soccer who are still hanging around or even some who are no longer directly involved in the game. You're never going to see them at a television screen moving diagrams around and helping you understand the game. That's just not going to happen. Part of that is because I don't think they have a great tactical understanding. That's not to say they're bad coaches necessarily, but there's a big difference between being a coach and being a tactician. Ideally, you'll be both. Bruce Arena, and I'm not trying to harp on on Bruce Arena here, is not that kind of guy. So many American coaches aren't those kinds of guys. But we're seeing that shift a little bit. We're seeing Jesse Marsh go to Salzburg and and be not only a leader, but be a, a smart guy tactically in how he develops players, but also how he strategizes, how he organizes his teams on the field. Bob Bradley, we've seen him adapt so much over the years, and now he's one of the best coaches, I think, tactically in Major League Soccer, American or not. So from the coaching level to the player level, I think we're seeing guys go over to Europe and be complimented a little bit more for their tactical understanding to now the general soccer-watching public. All of those levels of tactical understanding are increasing bit by bit in 2020. Another thing that is interesting when you talk about tactics, I guess, is I think there's a gut reaction that you need to be Roberto Martinez in some quarters to be able to talk in detail about tactics, that you need to be a former coach at the at the highest level or a former player at the highest level. I would push back against that, and I would say, look at Jonathan Wilson, the guy who wrote Inverting the Pyramid, which is literally the classic book on the history of tactics in the sport. And, you know, Jonathan didn't play or coach at a high professional level. Um, you know, look at Michael Cox, uh, Zonal Marking, as a lot of people know him, and the great tactical work that he's done over the years analyzing particular games. Um same thing, uh, you know, didn't play or coach at a, at a high professional level. Um, what is your opinion of all that? And, and what is your background? So, you know, I, I've been able to listen to your episode, so I know that you can talk about tactics at a high level. Yeah, my background is not one of a high level soccer player or a high level coach. I don't have 
a lot of experience playing soccer growing up. I did the classic American kid thing. I played for a few years when I was little, stopped playing for a really, really long time. And I did end up picking it back up in high school, but that was was not really the plan all along. I, I did the sandwich, essentially. Um, but there was no high-level tactical understanding there, no high-level playing experience there. And I've had, I've had flack for that, actually. I remember the very first U.S. men's national team game, the only U.S. men's national team game that I've had the chance to cover at this point in my career was Greg Berhalter's first game. It was Panama against the United States in Phoenix, and so it made sense for me to go out there and cover it. And I got flack for, or from one of the other journalists there. I don't actually remember who it was. I got flack for not being a player. He found out what I was doing there and, and the angle that I was trying to take in, in covering that game and writing about what Berhalter was trying to do on the field, instilling an identity for the United States men's national team. And he, he didn't yell at me, but he kind of, he more or less berated me in a very, a very calm way. He's a fine guy. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to say that, but he was very shocked and taken aback and not a huge fan of the fact that I was there to talk about tactics and to write about tactics from Berhalter's first game in charge. So I've, I've dealt with that a little bit on social media, not very much, but in person some, and, and that doesn't happen as often as I think it would have in the past. And I'm thankful for that. And that stuff doesn't bother me. I don't, I'm not, you know, captive to other people's opinions in that regard, but we're seeing the shift. We're seeing the shift absolutely right now. We're seeing coaches in Europe come up who have not played at a high level professionally or haven't spent a lot of time playing. Julian Nagelsmann is not uh, an elite professional player, right? Just that's one example of many coaches in Europe right now who are doing that sort of thing. And Nagelsmann is one of the best coaches in the entire world, especially for being an incredibly young guy. We're seeing the perception change. And so I'm with you, Grant. I think you look at guys like Jonathan Wilson, Michael Cox, from the media side of things, those guys have both been very inspirational figures for me in seeing that, oh, I don't actually have to have played professionally. Not that that means, not that that can't be an advantage, because I think that does elevate you in a lot of people's eyes, but now we're in the point of, of soccer culture and soccer history, I guess, where you don't have to be a super well, highly regarded former figure in the sport to talk about strategy. What would you say are some of your biggest influences and in how you approach breaking down things tactically? Yeah, Michael Cox is a big one. I enjoy now reading his work for The Athletic, which is where I was before the, the pandemic hit. And so getting a chance to write for the same place that he was was, very, was a very cool thing for me. And then honestly, the biggest influence, the biggest influence from how I look at soccer, and I've told these guys this, is Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove. I, I learned and fell in love with soccer from listening to the Total Soccer Show, listening to those two guys sit down at the table, laugh, talk about dumb stuff sometimes, silly stuff other times, and talk about soccer and, and analyze it and dig into it. Listening to how those two guys sunk their teeth into the game made me fall in love with the game and the way that I see it. They, they helped me grow a passion for soccer in a strategic, in-depth way, not just looking at what happened on the field, but looking at why it happened. So almost all of my influences have been more on the media side of things than on the player or coaching side of things, which maybe is a little bit strange, but that's just been my, my situation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. And as I'm sure listeners know, we, we lost our friend Daryl Grove recently, and, and Daryl had a, a big impact on you, I know. He's had a, a big impact on on me and getting this podcast going that we're talking about. Um, and just, you can't say enough positive things about about what he did. In terms of like helping you get your podcast ready for prime time, what were those things that he helped with? Oh man, everything. 
Uh, from from the microphone, I think I said this on a recent episode of TSS that I guessed it on, but the microphone that I'm talking into right now, I asked, I sent Daryl a text and said, wait, what mic should I get or what mic should I be looking at? And he sent me this link and I, I bought this microphone. So from the microphone side of things, the audio side, the editing side, all of those things were either Daryl specific or Daryl and Taylor working with me on those things from getting the podcast launched to learning how hosting works and how both hosting a podcast that that's from the side that people hear, but also the behind the scenes, where does the episode go on the internet kind of hosting? How do I title an episode? What should I put in the description? Every single thing that I know about podcasting came from the Total Soccer Show guys and came from Daryl's enthusiastic willingness to help and from Taylor's willingness to step in and help me in so many ways as well. So I'd love to tell you one or two things, but it, it genuinely is all of the things. Yeah. I mean, I just this year, because I went out on my own with this podcast, I don't produce it. My friend Chris Whittingham does because he actually has those skills uh, in addition to many other skills. But like, um, you know, I, I'm still posting it and, 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 you know, doing some of the technical things. And uh, I, I learned that from from Daryl and Taylor. Uh, so just yeah. so appreciative to to those guys and and everything they they've done. Um I did text Jordan Angeli yesterday. I told her I was going to be interviewing you, and she was very excited about this. Um, and she gave me some questions that she thought would be good for this oh, no. interview because I, I guess she was interested in, in knowing the answers to this. Um, which team and and coach do you most enjoy breaking down video of their teams? Oh, boy. I love that Jordan is is sort of backdooring through to this conversation. That's very <laughs> impressive. Good work, Jordan, if you're listening to this. That's that's well done from you. Which coach do I enjoy breaking down the most? And there's a little bit of a of a double-edged sword here because part of me loves the pain of analyzing teams tactically. And and that's really a dramatized way to put it. But when I watch a team and I cannot figure it out, I like that. And it's kind of it's kind of twisted a little bit. I like the the challenge. And I'll I know because I'm not in the locker room, I'm not having conversations with the coach, that I never truly will figure it out. And that hurts me a little bit. But I say all that because Thierry Henry's Montreal impact right now is that team a little bit for me. He's done so many different things with them. They're not a great soccer team. They don't have elite level talent at most spots. They don't do a lot of things on the field super well. But structurally, one thing will change in one game and they'll be in a five at the back shape. Then the next thing will change in the next game. They'll be in a four... 2-2-2, and then another thing will change, and it looks like a 4-4-2 diamond. The list goes on and on. I like that. And so almost in line with that to look abroad and, and zoom out from Major League Soccer a little bit is Nagelsmann's Leipzig team. They'll change up what they do. What they, At the core, I should put it this way, at their core, they do the same thing in almost every game. They're trying to be aggressive defensively. They're trying to break teams down with the ball a little bit more than other Red Bull teams, more than other Red Bull teams do. But they'll change up the method in which they do that. They'll change up the shape that they're playing. They'll change up little things. And I like checking in on Leipzig to see what those little things are. So that's half of the equation, the more, the more twisted part of, of my love for tactics. But I also love watching. I always have, I think, since he's been at LAFC, Bob Bradley. I already talked about him. I talked about how LAFC plays a little bit. But their team has been so much fun to watch relative to the rest of Major League Soccer. They play the way that Bob Bradley thinks everyone should play soccer, and they do it well. And, and not a lot of teams in Major League Soccer are willing or, or have the desire to play like that, to play with the ball, to try to break a low block instead of just sitting in a low block themselves. 
And so I have a lot of respect for what Bob Bradley has done with that team, especially when you contrast it with the rest of of what we see in Major League Soccer. What I find fascinating about Bob, and, and he's had, I've said this before on the podcast, more of an influence on me as a journalist than anybody, uh, just because I go back to 1992 with him, um, is I don't even know if he would agree to this because Bob does like to be contrarian. Uh, if you've seen his <laughs> interviews. I think his tactic, tactical approach has changed post coaching the U.S. men's national team. So he left that job in 2011, went to Egypt, coached Egypt, um, then went back to the club game, was in Norway with Staubach, uh, was in France uh, with Luav, uh, was with Swansea all too briefly, um, and then came back to LAFC. I do feel like even not necessarily compared just to his U.S. teams, but to his days with the Metro Stars and Chivas USA and the Chicago Fire, that he's a bit more freewheeling than he used to be. <laughs> there, there seems to be like some some caution thrown to the wind. We can see that. I, I don't totally disagree with you. I think I think there have been changes, even structural changes between the beginning and even middle of his coaching career to now with LAFC, there have been changes in shape. LAFC now play 4-3-3. They have for a lot of his tenure. They at times have shifted the midfield a little bit, but by and large, it's been 4-3-3 from the start with LAFC. With the, with the U.S. men's national team, zooming in on that, we didn't see a lot of that. And part of that was personnel-based, and I think he would probably say that, and he probably has said that. But he played more of a 4-4-2, and we got to hear empty bucket all the time. We got to hear that term over and over again. And I think he pushes back against that term and against the idea that that men's national team under him was very basic tactically because there actually were intricacies to that team. I spent a good chunk of, of the very early stages of the pandemic watching old United States men's national team games, specifically nice. under Bob Bradley, for a piece I was working on analyzing that Confederations Cup victory over Spain before the World Cup. And I, I was watching Bob Bradley's team, and there are things that if we saw that team play today, and I, I, I've almost heard Bob say this before, so I hate to kind of echo him because he doesn't need anyone to echo him. But if we saw that team play today in a 4-4-2 with two playmakers out wide, able to tuck inside into the midfield, have the fullbacks push high, we would, we would fall over ourselves, or I would at least, watching that team now and analyzing them and talking about all the fun intricacies of what they're doing in the rotations and all of the, the defensive structural nature of that shape and how it influences their attack. We would go crazy over that. And so Bob Bradley has changed, and I do believe that. I think you're absolutely right there, Grant. But there's been a common thread in how he sets up his teams, how he likes to move the ball when he does have it from before the U.S., from the U.S. to now with LAFC. Good stuff. I, I, you should, I hope you do interview Bob at some point because uh, I think it would be fun to hear you guys go back and forth a little bit. Uh, <laughs> one other question from Jordan was, um, uh, what are the most... Okay, let's see here. Sorry. Oh, would you consider coaching or working in analytics with a team? I would. I would consider that. I mean, I'm, I'm open to doing pretty much anything just because I don't know... I don't know what will happen tomorrow. As we've seen, I don't know what happened in 2020. I never expected that. So we'll see what happens. But I would be, I would be interested in not necessarily working in analytics or, or that side of things, but as an analyst. 
I, I like the idea of digging into film and, and tying that with analytics and with data. I think that's very important. Now, it's not necessarily my area of expertise right now, but learning about that sort of thing is interesting to me. But digging in and helping coaches and coaching staffs figure out, okay, what's our opponent on Saturday going to be doing? What are their weaknesses? How do we exploit them? What are their strengths? How do we minimize them? That's more or less what I do now, just presenting it for a different audience than I would be doing a job like that. But yeah, Jordan and Grant, to answer your combined question, I would, I would be totally interested in doing something like that. Now, I haven't handed the entire podcast over to Jordan. I am going to earn my paycheck <laughs> a little bit here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your idea for 361 Soccer, which I, I saw your video on Jesse Marsh. This is a fairly new thing that you're doing, this sort of video storytelling uh, explanatory stuff. I assume that the name 361 Soccer is a very sort of American thing and a nod to the the Steve Sampson era where he used the 361 at the 1998 World Cup. You got it. You're very perceptive in that way, Grant. I'm pretty sure, not to, not to put you down, I think a lot of people figured that out um, and it wasn't very stealthy. But yeah, we spent a lot of time, myself, Jack Hazard and Diana Crump, who are the, the trio of us are working on this project. We spent a lot of time throwing names at the wall, seeing what stuck. And that's what stuck, the 361, thanks to Steve, Sam- thanks to Steve Sampson, I should say. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me because for a long time, people sort of derisively talked about the 361, in part because that U.S. team in 1998 didn't do well at that World Cup. Do you think, I, I want to hear about like what your vision is for what you want to do with 361 soccer, but do you think that the derision part of it has changed slightly maybe over the years? It's possible, and that ties into the tactical, the, the love that I think we're finding as a society or as soccer watchers for some tactical idiosyncrasies. We like that stuff now as a, as a general soccer watching public. We're, we're intrigued by that, and we maybe are a little slower to deride that. But also at the same time, that's okay. American soccer is so quirky. I think Alexi Lala says this a lot. American soccer is so quirky, and we can be really insecure and so I think the 361 almost encapsulates our soccer identity as a nation in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways that maybe people wouldn't think about initially, or even I didn't think about initially when first mulling over the name. But the more you think about it, the more I sat on it, the more I realized this could be sort of emblematic of where we are and what our soccer culture is, tying in, of course, the tactical element that I, I really like. And I wanted to fit that idea. This is going to be about strategy and about tactics sometimes, about visions, our first video was about Jesse Marsh and was about how he sees the game of soccer. That tactical, that stylistic element to it is something that I want to intertwine with a lot of the videos that I'm hoping we're going to be doing. Um, but I think it also is just a, a realization and a, a bit of introspection into who we are as a soccer culture. <laughs> I mean, it's also interesting, you know, your your Jesse Marsh video is around five minutes long. Um, and it's clear that like you like the tactical side of things, but you're starting to branch out now into other explanatory type things. And and is that part of of what you want to be doing moving forward? It is. And I think from a media side, it's important. And you know this better than anyone, I'm sure. It's important. And I think it's important to be talented and and to do different things, to do things in multi-different ways, right? I I just think of a multi-tool. That's what I'm trying to say here. A multi-tool to be having different skills and to be executing and showing those skills. So I I love tactics and I, I think I always will. 
But there are also other things that I like about media. There are other things and other parts of this that I, I like and I respect when I see other people do them. And I also want to try my hand at. And so the Marsh video was about tactics in a way, but it was also about him, his leadership, his philosophy, why he's coaching in Salzburg in the first place, all in all, all trying to be wrapped under a neat little bow. Whether we did that or not is up to the viewer. But all of those things are what we're trying to accomplish here. And so the other videos that we have planned look at little little parts of the game and little idiosyncrasies, little strangeness. The next video we've got coming out on Wednesday, we're publishing the first video, the first Wednesday of every month is about Joseph Martinez. I'll go ahead and drop that now. It's about Joseph Martinez and a really interesting thing that he does on the field that not a, not a lot of other players in soccer do. So we want to get into the nitty gritty, strange stuff that you might not get into other places but we also do want to be doing more general things that are appealing to a lot of the soccer public. Because I recognize the tactics and the in-depth stuff isn't for everyone, and that's fine. But being able to serve more of the audience is a good thing, I think. Yeah, and I, I think from what I can tell, that extends to some of the podcast episodes you're doing for Soccer 101, which is something that Daryl and Taylor had started as a, sep- a spin-off show for Total Soccer Show, sort of explaining certain things about the soccer world and there's a million different things you can pick the ones that you've done recently are explaining el clasico the barcelona real madrid rivalry and what is expected goals and i love the idea of soccer 101 because it's something that is useful i think for people who are very new to soccer but also even people who've been in, this, in soccer for a long time and maybe haven't thought that deeply about something and everything around it. And it's something I've always tried to do in like a magazine story. I would always take the approach of, I want to write something that is interesting to hardcore soccer fans, but also interesting to someone who is They would describe themselves as a mainstream sports fan who may watch the World Cup, but may not be hardcore soccer every day of the week. Um, How do you find that balance and, and, and how do you get going doing these Soccer 101 episodes? It is a hard balance to find, and it's a balance that I was trying to figure out how to do when I was going through and and prepping and writing some notes for that what is expected goals and what are and why are advanced stats useful in soccer. I think that was the the full title of that episode that I was doing recently. I was wrestling with that a little bit because a lot of people know what expected goals is at this point. It's a pretty mainstream soccer statistic, but not everyone knows. Stats aren't for everyone. And, and for someone who's maybe finally been broken down by all of the money ball talk that's happened in the sports world over the years and has finally decided, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna try to learn a little bit about this. I'm going to dig my, my teeth in a tiny bit. I wanted to make it interesting for them, but also interesting for people who are either working in stats or understand all these things already. And so being, being clever and a little innovative with the writing at times, I think, can help draw in those kinds of audiences and can speak to different levels of understanding and also making sure that the way you're explaining things and the way that I tried to explain stats on that episode is clear. Because sometimes people need those clear instructions. I need information presented to me in a clear fashion. And even people who might already have an understanding of stats can also learn or be reminded of things in that way. So in that episode, I also tied in other stats that aren't quite as common, like expected assists, which is a very similar idea to expected goals. 
um, PPDA, which is a defensive metric, other things that people who might already know about XG might not have known. So that was my my solution to tackling that episode and making it interesting to a wide variety of audiences. But to get to the the other part of your question there, how I got involved in doing the shows, that is what you asked, right, Grant? Yes. Okay, perfect. How I got involved in Soccer 101 is Taylor essentially reached out and asked if I would be interested in taking some of those on now that he's he's crazy busy. Obviously, a lot of things are happening and it's an unfortunate time, but I told him I'm more than happy to step in and I like tackling different projects. It gives me a chance to flex some different muscles. They're not always tactical, although some of the episodes that I'm doing probably will be. But again, it gives me a chance to work on some different things and to learn some different things myself along the way. It's pretty cool. You're working sort of in a triple threat situation. You're doing video, you're doing podcasts, you're doing writing. Uh, you have your your newsletter as well. That's a lot of stuff for one thing. Uh, how are you able to, to be doing all this stuff and is there one sort of platform that feels most natural to you? Like for me, writing has always been my first most natural thing. And so podcast may be second easiest for me just because it's an extension of like the interviews of I've always done. Video took me longer to, to get going on, on that. Um, but it, like, is there is there one platform that feels most natural to you? It's definitely not video at this point because that's something that Jack and Diana are spearheading for me because I don't know how animation works or design or illustration works. Those things are not skills that I have in my wheelhouse. So my role, even in within the video side, is is writing and, and audio because I'm writing the script and I'm recording myself reading the script, right? So that's something that I feel comfortable with because of my background writing and podcasting. As far as things that I'm most comfortable with, it's probably still writing. I recognize that I have a lot of room to grow as a writer, I guess as everybody does over time. I mean, there's never, you've never made it as far as the quality of writing, but I think that's still most comfortable for me because it's not dependent on anything other than just my ability to sit there and think and type out thoughts. Podcasting, I can trip over words as I often do. I can lose track of a thought, all of these things, and that happens less on paper. And at the end of the day, writing and, and illustration in the visual side is still the easiest way to talk about tactics. And so because that's what I find myself doing the most often, that is still the most comfortable element and that's the most comfortable medium for me to be to be using on a regular basis. Yeah. Let me see if I got this right. You said that your your partners on the video stuff for 361 are named Jack and Diana. Yes, that's correct. I would be so tempted to play a John Cougar Mellencamp song talking about Jack and Diane. Have you made that <laughs> joke with them? And is it a dad joke? And do they not laugh? I have not made that joke with them, but I have made it. And if you guys are listening, I've made it um, when you guys are not hearing what I'm saying. I've thought about it quite a lot and been singing the song in my head quite frequently since we started working together. But seriously, Jack is Jack Hazard is a fantastic animator and designer. And Diana is a super talented illustrator and I'm very fortunate to be working with them on this project and that they're they're along with me on this ride because we don't really know where it's going to go. There's not something like this like 361 in the American soccer world. Um and we're hoping to to continue to put out videos if I mean as long as the interest matches our our ability to do that with the amount of time that it takes. And I guess that's a question I've got for you. Where do you want to go with all this? Um you know, I you're a very young guy. Um what you're doing is pretty cool. That's a great question. And if I had that figured out, I think I would be doing that thing right now. But it's hard because I like so many of the different elements of soccer. I like all the different mediums that we've talked about. Um, 
But I want to continue to do this and to, to continue to grow and essentially not be pigeonholed into any one thing. Because I, I have such a passion for, I don't think I've said this on this show, I have such a passion for seeing projects start and seeing them grow and being involved in those in some capacity, whether that's behind the scenes, whether that's working on it, down in the trenches writing and, and doing those sorts of things, or, or stepping away a little bit. I enjoy all of those parts of the game. And so I really want to be a, a figure in the American soccer media and conti- to continue to, to do that and to build uh, an audience that will follow as I, you know, I go from writing at a publication like The Athletic to not writing for The Athletic anymore. I want to to be able to carve out wherever I want to go in a sense. And maybe that's greedy, but that's, that's the end goal for me. It's not a specific goal, but that's the idea is that I will be able to, to continue starting things and and continuing projects that I already have right now to allow myself opportunities as they come. Joseph Lowry, we'll call him Joe, is the Phoenix-based co-host of the MLS Assist podcast on tactics and MLS with Jordan Angeli. He's also the founder of 361 Soccer, which does video storytelling around the American game. He writes a newsletter called Benched, which has a link on his Twitter profile. He also has been doing podcast episodes of Soccer 101 with our partner, The Total Soccer Show. You can find him on Twitter at Joe in Cleats. Joe, congratulations on everything you're doing. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Grant, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Joe Lowry, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.